Amen. Thanks, Scott. Uh, thank you, Travis, Lauren. I'd say it as well. We, we love you. We're praying for you. We're excited. May your, uh, may your ministry, your life, be just be fruitful. Uh, excited, excited about it. <clears throat> and then Scott and I will work out and fight who gets to go see you on a care trip. So there's, uh, there's that. If uh, you have a Bible, it would be great if you could pull it out. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take one. It should be one right in front of you. It's a black one. That could be a gift for you. It's our desire, uh, just so you know, one of the things that we long for and one of the principles upon which we stand, uh, you do not need. It's a beautiful and a good thing uh, to come together as the body of Christ and to have someone who has a degree But God desires to meet you, and he's revealed himself in his word, and you can find him there. So if you don't have a Bible, we'd encourage you to seek after after God in the pages of Scripture, and I think that you'll see that he is a faithful and good and trustworthy God. Uh, as, you're, uh, as you're turning, let me just say uh, again, welcome. So glad that you're here. Really grateful. My name's Lance. Uh, it's, it's a joy. It's a huge gift to me to get to serve as a pastor here at Four Oaks. And we think it's a, just a, a sweet thing. It's a sweet thing, a good thing to come together as the body of Christ. I need you. You need one another. Uh, to be brothers and sisters and to come underneath the word of God is a, is a special thing. It's a gift to us. So thanks for taking advantage of that. Uh, I hope that in the next number of minutes I can be a help to you. That's the goal. That's the aim. And I've been praying uh, to that end. Let me give you a little bit of an orientation on where we are. Now, some of you may have just come in. You're one of the f- first times you've visited. You've come with a friend. Or maybe you're an old friend who's just jumping back into the fray. And you might think to yourself, well, that's a little odd to turn to the end of a book like Acts and dive into a shipwreck passage. The reason that we're here in Acts 27 is because we are finishing a series that was started at the beginning of last fall. We've spent nine to ten months walking through. We think it's good and right to turn through the pages of Scripture and to receive from it as it comes, as it is written. And so we have two weeks left. I don't know if you guys remember this. We started this all the way back in 2014. You remember? Remember that? Remember? It was way back in 2014. And now we have two weeks left, this week and next week, to ponder and think through the amazing fact that God has planted the gospel, the good news, the message of what he's done in Jesus Christ. And it started in a huddled mass of 120 and has now exploded across the entirety of the known world at the time, has transformed cities and individuals and fortune tellers and marketplaces, the messengers of that gospel have remained steadfast and faithful to the point of being beaten and nearly to death. And they have pointed back and said, we were witnesses. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, and he is the hope of the world. That is what has been taking place in Acts. What an exciting book. And now, if that were not enough, Luke is kind to us, and at the end of this long story, he throws in an amazingly suspenseful, Moby Dick, hero, on the seas, old man in the sea kind of adventure for us. I'm going to give you a spoiler, just so you know. Some of you maybe have, have sensitive stomachs or minds, like one of my sons, who when he watches a cartoon, if there's any kind of suspense in it, he runs upstairs, he's over, it's done. So, spoiler, I want you to know, everyone in this story is unharmed at the end of the story. I just want you to know, there were no 
apostles harmed in the making of this chapter of the Bible. They make it to the end. That's what we know at the end. And I'm going to walk through and read this really amazing account. I don't know why God puts all the things that he puts in the Bible there. But I trust that every word, every letter, every phrase is for our instruction, it's for our benefit, and we have an astoundingly detailed account of a ship adventure. I want to break it up for you in a way that seems maybe helpful. So I'm going to read a few verses, then I'm going to stop, I'm going to pause to make sure we're all caught up, make sure you got your maritime lingo down, and then we're going to continue. Uh, Let me give you a couple of places to hang, because I know this is hard for me. When I dove into this, I thought, how are we not going to get lost? I read a number of commentaries, five or six, reading these sermons, and finally, a guy that I really like a lot, his name is Alistair Begg, he placed four words over the top of the narrative that I think helped, and it might help us. These are the words. We're going to see at the start, all aboard, I'll start with all, all aboard, it's going to be verses one to five, then all change. There's a change that takes place. Verses 6, basically through 13. Then all over. As in, it's all over. And then finally, all right. Everything is all right. It's all right. Those are going to be the sections that we deal with as we read it. Because I want to do my best to keep you up to speed. So let's jump in at the first verse of Acts chapter 27. Paul has made his defense before Agrippa. He has appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. Acts 27.1 And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea. We put to sea. Accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonia from, Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, you're good. You are majestic, mighty, and powerful. You hold the universe together by the word of your power. And yet here, today, in this place, we address you as our Father. We are your children. And it's because of that standing, the standing we have in Jesus Christ as friends, as adopted, as redeemed, it's because of that standing that we can ask a bold thing. God, would you enlighten our eyes? Bend our ears by the Holy Spirit. Father, send your Spirit in abundance. Holy Spirit, come. Take from Jesus and give to us. Convict the world starting with us concerning sin and righteousness. Lead us into all truth. And Father, we ask for your spirit, knowing that you are a daddy who gives good gifts to his children. It delights you to meet with us here. We expect God to hear from you. We thank you for this story of your faithfulness. 
of your promises. And I pray that you'd help us. We don't want to be like those who see your word, who hear your word and walk away unchanged. Keep us from delusion. We ask that you'd meet us, that even in our studying, that we could worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All aboard. That's the phrase to get the journey started. We've seen Paul in an unbelievable circumstance. He is jumping on board a ship in order to make his way to Rome. This has been Paul's intention since at least the 19th chapter of the book of Acts to make his way to Rome. And that makes sense because Rome is an amazing place. Rome, the shadow of Rome, the policies of Rome, the marketplace of Rome cast a shadow over all of the known world. The empire in some way all made its way back to Rome. In a modern day example, Rome would have been in this time something like a combination of Washington DC and New York City and San Francisco all rolled up together in one. And so of course, when you reach the highest level of appeal, you would go to the law courts in Rome. At this point, though, we must say that Paul joining other prisoners to get to Rome is not a good news adventure. These other prisoners were likely headed to Rome because they've been condemned to death, and they will be at the center of the Colosseum, murdered in what could only be described as the most entertaining way possible. And yes, I said entertaining. The populace of Rome had a gladiator culture that needed to be fed and they weren't going to be taking people from their own homes. The empire, specifically those who were prisoners out in these far-reaching areas, would have been put together in a chain gang and brought on the arduous journey to Rome in order to be slaughtered, basically, is how it worked. And Paul finds himself in the midst of this. Some of you have watched movies or seen, seen things about Rome, what this looked like. When I saw the Colosseum and, and got to be there in Rome, it was one of the most amazing moments, I think, of my life. To think, I cannot believe that leisure was this, was this amazing back then. I mean, it's like a stadium. It's a, ma- it's a massive stadium. And if you have visions in your mind, in the first service, I couldn't think of the guy's name who was in the movie with the thing. And I realized that it would not be good if I got it wrong. I was like, you guys remember when Tom Hanks was in Gladiator? He was really good. Uh, he, was, he just really buffed up for the role is what he did. But that's the kind of thing. It's these prisoners. And I want you to just pause for a moment and think because we get to the point where this has lost some of the sting for us. The providence of God that one of the most bright theological minds of the church era, the most fruitful, evangelistic, church-planting missionary in the history of the church, in the moment that we encountered him, is in a chain gang on his way to Rome with people who will basically be eaten by lions in the Colosseum. This is the providential plan of God. Very rarely is it the kind of thing that we would imagine. It's good enough for Paul. I imagine a topsy-turvy kind of life is good enough for us. That's the kind of thing that we're seeing. 
So all aboard, Paul and who knows how many prisoners. Later in the text, we're going to see there were 276 people on this ship. In addition to Paul and prisoners, there is Julius, which is a beautiful name, which was rudely abused by orange juice, right? And, right? So Julius is a centurion who, when you look through the pages of Scripture, honestly, centurions were excellent men. Roman leaders, not so excellent. You see Felix trying to get a bribe. You see guys kind of swarmy and as political as you would expect. But centurions almost always are men who understand what authority is. They interact with Jesus and the other leaders in a respectful way. They act nobly. Whatever Julius had to do to become a a man who was in charge of 80 to 100 other Roman soldiers, he was a dude. He was like another level of man in nobility and character and probably every other thing. There was a guy that I once went on a a trip to Mexico with. We were building a a classroom space for a church there, some missionaries that we'd supported for years and years and years. And he owned part of a construction company, like an excavating company. And so you'd kind of expect it. But I worked side by side with him in cement for two days. And I, am I a man? Well, technically, yes, I am, right? Right? This was like a whole nother level of human. I I watched him. He would throw two by fours around and shove his hand in concrete. Every time I got like a drip, I was like asking for like, does anyone have any to wipe this off? This is the kind of guy, I know this sounds crazy, but when I listen to centurions, or I think of centurions, I listen to the Bible, I think of a guy like that. I think of a guy like, no, he knows how to get stuff done and he's just noble and has integrity. And that's the picture that we get. So there's Paul, church planting missionary to the nations. There's prisoners, entertainment fodder for the Roman populace. And then there's Julius, who's just like an amazing stud of a man. Some soldiers, some sailors, some pilots, some captains, some other people that we see. And they all jump on board this small little ship that can only go along the coast. Now, this is probably putting out from Caesarea. It's from the, to the northwest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a port town, but Paul was in Caesarea in his latest defense. And so they need to figure out how they get across from Caesarea to Rome. There's no bullet trains. There's no automobiles. There's no first class. There's not even terrible, horrible coach class flying. Get back there and I'm going to close the curtain, I'll bring your peanuts in an hour, right? Like, there's not even that horrible way to travel. To get to Rome was an unbelievably arduous journey. So they're in this little boat, and they're sailing along, and we start to see immediately there are going to be some difficulties. There's going to be some things we learn about Paul, and I'll come back to it later, the fact that he is able to leave and go in at Sidon and meet his friends. An amazing network of people that Paul had to this point. They sailed across open sea, they get to Myra, and they put in, and something must take place, something needs to change. Julius says, this is not going to work. Our little boat, our little kayak is not going to make it. And so I'm going to begin reading in the sixth verse, down through 13, all change. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens. 
Is that a suburb of Orlando? <laughs> Near which was the city of Lasea. And since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. I'm going to pause there. They've changed ships. The first one that they jump in is not big enough. It's not going to cut it. It's getting to the point in the season, in the winter season, where the sailing is going to be rough. And so Julius jumps on board with the ship of Alexandria. Alexandria is a city basically in modern-day Egypt. It would have been a place that provided a large percentage of the amount of wheat and food that Rome would have needed to survive. This is a cargo ship. We learn later when they start tossing it off the ship that it is weighed down with tons of wheat. And they jump on this ship thinking that this will give them safer passage, a better shot to get across to where they need to go and finally find a port in Italy. So everyone jumps off the original ship. They jump on this new ship and Luke begins to just ratchet up the intensity. If he were writing the story, if he were filming the film, these would be the little foreshadowing moments of a rumble of a cloud. A rumble of a cloud? Cloud thunder? I guess that makes sense. You're like, whoa here, meteorology, man. I don't know what that means. But this would be the moment when it would be like darkness would be coming, right? We said at first they went slowly, and now they're on the bigger ship, and they're going with some difficulty, Luke says. We're seeing that this trip is ill-fated. It is not going to go well. There is a bit of an exchange that goes on. It's one of the first times that we see Paul begin to speak up. Because even the fast was already over, he says, I don't think this is a good idea for us to go. The reason that this idea of the fast being over is a big deal is because it meant that winter was coming. In this time, you basically sailed from March until the end of August or September. That was the good season in the sea. That's when you would sail. And starting in about September, all the way up through the middle of November, things were sketchy. You just did not want to go unless you absolutely had to. And from the middle of November through March, it was just over. Do not go. It was like, it was like the eight months of winter in North Dakota is basically what that what that was like. That's how I imagine it. I can see this. I know why you don't want to go. The waves are too bad. The rocks are too pointy. The something else is bad. You just don't want to go in the winter. And so the fact that the fast was over, scholars have looked back. They paged through the history of scripture. The fast referred to the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, right, in Israel. And they say that this is the year 59 and it's October 5th would have been the Day of Atonement. And so Paul is looking around and he's saying, guys, we're already well into October. Nobody can sail once you get to November. I don't think we should go. It's one of the first times we see Paul exerting some leadership. And now if you are our friend Julius, 
you have to admit you would do the same thing that he did. The pilot, the captain, the owner of the ship says, no, I think it's fine, we should keep going. That's on one hand. And then the other hand, you have the religious guy. <laughs> like, honestly, probably about like me. Oh, you went to church school. Tell me more about sailing, Paul, right? <laughs> tell me more about winter and maritime law, right? Like, tell me more. I'd imagine at this point, though Paul's being ever so polite, and he's saying these things, that Julius is, is thinking to himself like, okay, this is no contest, right? No one probably thought it was odd that he didn't listen to Paul, and instead he listened to those people who owned the ship and knew how to sail. So why is Luke including this particular detail? I think he's showing us a little bit. He's setting up, just in the same way that he's setting up this foreshadowing of the trip getting increasingly difficult, he's showing us increasingly that God has a prophetic vision to give to Paul. He has a voice through Paul. He has a purpose through Paul that will not be thwarted. To Luke, it's important that Paul become a voice, a voice that is at first ignored and then eventually God speaks so clearly through him. And that's why the detail is there. And even though we see a little bit of increasing difficulty, by the time we got to the end of verse 13, everything seems to be okay. I want to tell you, starting in verse 14, it's all over. I'm going to jump back in, 14th verse. We're going to read up through 20. But soon, you got to love these words, soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. These sailors, these prisoners, perhaps temptation even in Luke or Aristarchus or Paul himself was to say, it is all over. Have you ever been at this place? We really think, okay, up to this point it was just kind of foolishness and I thought we were going to make it, but now it is really all over. You hear these stories of people who spend days and days and days at sea and then finally are rescued. I thought through this. What would it be like to be in the midst of a tempestuous wind? I defy you to use that word in regular conversation this week. Tempestuous, right? Not about your wife. Tempestuous wind. They named it. This practice of naming. Like we have weird names, things that sound pleasant like Ira and Irene, things like that. This Northeaster is a combination of a Greek and a Latin word. They were naming what kind of wind this was. Like, if you get caught in one of these, you'll want to name it. You'll want something to scream at when this thing comes. I don't know what it's like to be in the face of this. I'm not sure what it's like to be violently storm-tossed. For many days, they did not see the sun or stars at night. Pure darkness. They didn't have GPS Apple Maps, not a thing. 
They navigated by sun and stars, and they were in total darkness. And it says, no small tempest lay on us. I thought about, how could I really relay what this would be like to be in the midst of an unbelievably terrible water-like storm? Then I remembered I'm in Florida, right, for one thing. North Dakota, this wouldn't go very well, right? We wouldn't get this. One hour from my house in North Dakota is the geographical center of the continent of North America. That means... If you go there, you cannot get further from salt water if you tried. Like you just, you absolutely cannot. So I thought to myself, I don't know. I want to say one of these times where I thought to myself, wow, water's powerful and this is a bad idea. I went on a canoe trip, right? You can roll your eyes. I'll give you a moment. Okay. I went on a canoe trip with my brother and his friends uh, to the Boundary Water Canoe Area in Minnesota. I don't know if you know this, but on the northern, in the northern part of Minnesota, there are hundreds of thousands of acres that have been completely set aside. There are no people living there. There are no roads. It's illegal to have a motorized anything in this place. The border of Canada goes through there. You have to get a permit to go in. They only let a certain number, number of people go in at different points at different times. And so me and my best friend and my brother and his business partner, we jump in canoes, all the stuff we need for seven days, and we go on a rowing death, death row. That's what it was. It was a death row. My brother loves camping. He'll spend a whole weekend trying to call down three ounces from his backpack. He'll call me and say, I just got a sewing machine. And I'm like, where's the punchline? Like, what's the joke here? Now I can sew my own hammocks with my, like, he's just that kind of guy. And he had for us a seven-day trip planned of complete and utter watery hell. It was just like every day was just more rowing. I'd get, we'd get behind, hundreds of yards behind my brother. I don't know why we can't row. And I'd turn around to my friend and say, why aren't we rowing? And he would just be with his shirt off like sun tanning <laughs> back there. For, for an hour, I'd been pulling the whole canoe, right? And at one point, we, crossed, we had to cross one of the biggest lakes in the area And we got hundreds of yards out into the middle of this lake and we began to hear this thunder. We began to see the flashes of light and we just thought like, I hope that misses us. Except it totally did not miss us. For the next 20 or 30 minutes, and I know this is on a canoe and I'm in a lake and I'm in Minnesota, it's not like there's a gator or all the other terrible, horrible things that are in lakes here. But still, like a walleye could bite me or something. Like I'm in the middle of this lake We have hundreds of pounds of gear and all this stuff with us on this canoe. And we are, honestly, I felt like fighting for my life. We are having to adjust the canoe and turn it so that we can stay into the waves and not get completely tipped over. Soaked every ounce of my body. Waves and waves of rain coming along. Lightning flashing down across over there. It was the closest thing I can imagine the thinking like water should not be messed with. You know, you remember Genesis? God made us on land. Remember that? There's a reason he made us on land. Water is a scary place. You know, we know more about the face of the moon than about the face of the ocean, the depths of the ocean, I should say. Ocean is scary. Things will eat you in there. You can't even drink the water. It's a scary place. We made it through. I just want you to know. We made it through in the canoe. We stayed upright, soaked, and we began to paddle to our camping place. And this has no point in the story except we came across a deer, a deer swimming in the middle of the lake. I know, right? Like, (laughs) what? And we thought maybe he was running from something or scared, and it just turned out he's just going for a swim. 
So for like 20 minutes going to our campsite, we were just canoeing along. It's like, hey, Mark, how you doing? Deer. <laughs> like, he just swam by us. And the, I told the story in the 9 a.m. service, and afterward, three people came up and said, you never said what happened to the deer. Did it die? That's what my, I would call a poor illustration. But... Um, Here's the thing, the, the deer survived. Like apparently it was just going for a swim. I didn't know they did that. And we watched from our campsite. Five minutes later, it just swam up on shore and ran off into the woods. So it was fine. The point of that story is to say this, that when you're completely out of control and you are in a place you are not designed to live, you're in the middle of the ocean, you cannot navigate and a storm's upon you, you will be tempted to say all hope is abandoned. It is all over. But of course... That is not the end of the story. Right in the moment that it's all over, Paul stands up and he says, it's all right. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island." Those two statements, it will be exactly as I've been told, and we must run aground on some island in the providence of God, those two things intersect, and it's okay. That's what we're learning. They will shipwreck, and it will be okay. 27th verse. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was dry, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to 
land. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It was all right. It didn't go perfectly, but it was all right. They totally reenacted scenes from Titanic, but it was all right. No one was harmed. No one was lost. They stayed the course because God had promised and God was faithful to his promise. I started a sermon by mentioning I don't know exactly why God puts every text of Scripture in the Bible. There's some things that he includes that I'm not sure exactly what to make of them. There's other things that he includes where I wish that there were more. In this particular instance, I think there are some things that we can learn by observation and example about some of the characters in this story. There's some things that we can just learn. Now, it's not going to help you probably in a very prescriptive kind of way. No one's writing in their notes right now. Got it. Ever lost at sea, outside of the Mediterranean, west coast of Crete. Throw up the foresail, right? No one's writing that. No one's saying, sound the fathoms. I'm so glad the Bible includes instruction for everyday life, right? But I do think in a narrative kind of way, we can learn sometimes implicitly and other times explicitly about characters in the text. The implicit characterization that we get is on Luke. Luke doesn't make much of himself in this text, but he is there all the way through. What a gift he is in recording this meticulous narrative for us. Did you notice right from the beginning that some of the wording had begun to change? When it was decided that, what? We would sail. This is one of four instances in Acts where Luke is a friend, a companion, a partner with Paul. He could have very easily said, I only want to do the interesting and the fun and the easy parts. I'm a doctor. Right, he could have said that. He is a companion of Paul. Some people think he may have even had to put himself into slavery of Paul in order to be on this journey at all. He's a companion. More than a companion, we learn of Luke that he is a meticulous eyewitness. We do not follow cleverly devised tales, Scripture tells us. This is a reminder to me, as we're reading the place names, you know that there's at least 20 different proper names mentioned in here? I'm trying to pronounce them all at least somewhat properly in an anglicized version of Greek, right? At least 20 place names, more than five islands mentioned. Tons of crazy detail. This is the details that are listened. This is an eyewitness account. Just for maritime language, these are some of the words that we could pick up. Now, I don't know anything about sailing or the sea. I was going to say water, but I, I drink it. So these are some of the words we get from Luke. Embark, sail, lee, harbor, anchor, northeaster, gear, cargo, tackle, sounding, fathom, stern, bow, rudders, foresail. This could be a handbook for how to sail, how to deal with a boat, And we're reminded that Luke is encountering these things and he's interested in them and he's probably writing them down and saying, "Um, this is what I'm observing, I'm seeing this. He is an eyewitness, which is what scripture is. It's the testimony of eyewitnesses who encountered historical fact. Historical fact. That's what scripture is. A man by the name of James Smith actually did a really in-depth study. He is a man who knows boating and sailing. He did an in-depth study of this particular chapter. Now, James Smith was one of the first members of the, wait for it, Royal Yacht Club. 
As if Yacht Club wasn't enough, right? It's like, go back, Jimmy. It's not pretentious enough yet. Royal Yacht Club, right? He's one of the founding members. one of the first members of this Yacht Club, right? He, know, he knew his way around. He would, he would often sail by himself, making this trek back and forth through the Mediterranean dozens and dozens and dozens of times over decades. He also happened to be a Greek and Latin antiquities scholar. So he loved Greek, he loved Latin, and he also sailed around a bit. And most of you women are like, what was his name again and his number? He died in 1866, and I'm sorry to say, he would have made a fine suitor for many of you. Because in addition to Greek and Latin antiquity expertise and sailing expertise, yacht expertise, he also was a student of scripture, and specifically Acts 27. He wrote an entire book going and doing studies, starting out from the places that they started out, trying to figure out if a, if a storm came and left us drifting for days on end, where would we end up and how far would we go? And in nearly every single instance, this work has not been matched to date to show the unbelievable accuracy of Luke's recounting of this particular journey. One commenter on that book, the book is called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. One commenter says this, Smith's work puts it beyond all reasonable doubt that the author of these latter sections of the book of Acts actually accompanied Paul on his great voyage to Rome. And in so doing, he provides a great deal of evidence that redounds to Luke's credit as an historian. His credit as meticulous, thoughtful witness of history. That's what scripture is. It's a witness to God's working in history, in time and in place. Now, Smith could not help but give a bit of a backhanded compliment as well. Despite saying that Luke was accurate, he also said he betrayed himself as being a landlubber as well. So, you really want to insult someone next time? Landlubber, apparently, is the phrase. More than the fact that Luke was accurate, one of the things that I love about Luke in this particular section is how quick and gracious he is in honoring people on the journey. It is, it is no small thing to say that Luke went through one of the most horrific experiences that anyone can describe. If these guys would have gotten to Rome in today and, age, and, now, and now, I can't even say that, today's day, <laughs> So we should talk about how to use words. I, nowadays, you know what they would do? They would run to Rome. They'd call up Romdervin Publishing, right? And they'd say like, hey, I got a doozy for you. It's crazy. Uh, once I get out of therapy, we're going to write a tell-all book about my shipwreck. This was a horrific, terrible, horrible moment. Hope had been abandoned, they said. And yet, Luke, in recording this particular section of Scripture, is so quick to point out small little graces in others. Specifically, the way he handles Julius. I just, I love it. In verse 3, he notes and remembers and records for us Julius' kindness to Paul. He treated Paul kindly, letting him go to his friends to be cared for. To be cared for there indicates that Paul was probably sick. He'd been in prison for two years after a horrible beating in the temple. He was sick and he needed help. And Julius was kind. And Luke does not have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad century or whatever it is. He does not have a bad time in life, a horrific moment, and look back and let his vision and his understanding of life be, be colored by that. 
He sees kindness and grace where it exists, and this is what I long to be like. I don't want to be the person who says, I had a bad day, therefore everyone is horrible and terrible, and I can't believe they're taking advantage of me. This is nothing but the grace of God in Luke. Verse 3, he says he treated Paul kindly. Verse 43, it was the centurion who wished to save Paul. He was the one that came. Then later in Acts chapter 28, when you record these crazy circumstances, there's natives on the island of Malta. He says, oh, they treated us so honorably. They gave to us. Luke is gracious in the midst of struggle and trials. I want to learn from that. We learn about Paul explicitly in this passage. We learn about Paul explicitly, not implicitly like Luke. Paul is, of course, in some ways the center of attention. Some of the things that we learn about him, one, he has integrity. Did you know at the moment, like if you, were, if you were a prisoner and you were in the chain gang and you were heading to Rome, did you know the wonderfully perfect time for him to escape? Julius says, hey, how about this? We're at side and you have some friends. Why don't you leave our slave ship and go be cared for? Paul leaves, he comes right back. He has integrity with the way that he's dealing with even his imprisonment. More than that, he shows unbelievable leadership in this text. That should not surprise us. We all know who Paul is. I think you could phrase his leadership basically from verse 21. Hope was abandoned. They had no food for a long time and Paul stood up among them. There's an example of leadership here from Paul. Leadership in general, especially in times of crisis, is basically this. When God gives someone the grace and the ability to stand up and speak up. To stand up and speak up. And that's what Paul does. He's a leader in this moment. I also think that Paul actually has a bunch of humility in this text as well. He is met by an angel. Did you catch that point? Anyone else have an angel of the Lord visit them in their sleep last night? These kind of things always happen to Paul. And yet he never writes about them from his own pen. Did you notice that? How do we know about his conversion on the road to Damascus? Luke records it for us three times. In moments when he's almost forced to describe it, Paul says things like, I know a man who may or may not have gone to heaven one time. I don't want to talk about it. In this case even, he says to them, Sirs, an angel of the Lord God Almighty visited me. And then he just drops it. He doesn't record full chapters in an epistle later on describing his interactions with spiritual beings. And I find this unbelievably humble of him. Paul was used of God in an insane way, but his life was never about Paul. You see that? Even through struggle and craziness. Now, there's a few times that he recounts and says, look, I was beaten like crazy. I was shipwrecked. I was... You know, you know where we get this account from Luke? We get a whole chapter of this shipwreck. You know where we get it from Paul? In one phrase. Shipwrecked, left for dead. Paul has a kind of humility about him that I admire. He, of course, has courage. He makes a toast and eats in the face of death when everyone else is saying we're about to die. But I think the biggest thing that's showed from Paul is really not about Paul, it's about God. Paul knows who God is. He says at a certain point, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. What a beautiful way to describe who you are. If you're in Christ here today, you belong to someone. This is not a, tra- this is not a religious transaction between two separate entities. You belong, part and parcel, to Jesus Christ. He is yours and you are his. I think verse 25 describes the heart and really the whole point of this chapter I have faith in God. It will be exact 
exactly as I have been told. The reason that Luke has to describe this shipwreck and the reason that it matters that they made it safely is because God promises and God cannot fail and God will not fail. Back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, God had promised to Paul, had promised to him, you will go to Rome. This is what he says. Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. I told you all the time this happens to him. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God had promised, Paul, you will make it to Rome, you will testify about me there. So this was not a minor, well, I guess Paul had a good run either way. Where God's promises and his word are at stake, he cannot fail. He will not fail. We have a whole book of promises. Why do we call you to Jesus Christ? Because every promise is yes and amen in him. Why do we call you to the text of scripture? Because in these pages, brothers and sisters, you find promises. And if you can believe like Paul that when God promises, he cannot, he must not, he will not fail. We have no hope otherwise. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is a promise of God. What if he misses it one day? He forgot. You know, there's billions of people, and I'm sorry, John. Everyone else, they confessed, I cleansed them, yes, I forgave, and you, I just missed it. This whole thing falls apart except for the fact that we have a God who promises and cannot be unfaithful. That is overall the point of this text. Why is Acts 27 here? Now there's a lot of nuance and we can ponder it, but here's a good Bible study tip. There's a great phrase that I heard one time. A great Bible study tip. A majority of the time, the plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. There's a lot to be said here, but here's the main and the plain thing. That when God makes a promise, he cannot fail. You can trust him. He is for you. He loves you. He will not drop you. That's the testimony of scripture over and over and over again. And we call you to Jesus because in him you are secure. Remember that little interchange where Paul says, look, I know you don't understand this, but God has a purpose for me. If you stay with me, you will be saved. If you go out there, you will die. This is the message of the cross. It's foolishness to the world, but we preach it anyway and say to people, you might not understand this, but if you don't stay with Jesus, if you don't stay in him, if you don't lean upon him, if you go out from him, even in the midst of the worst storm, you will die. Because God's purposes, his redemption, it all flows through Jesus. He loves Jesus and will not let him go, and therefore he loves you and will not let you go if you are in him. This text is crying out and screaming to us, you live in the same world as everyone else. You'll get the same diseases. You face the same death, the same discouragements. You'll have the same temptations to doubt, the same temptations to fear, to hopelessness. The difference that we have, the difference that we proclaim, is that you know and belong to a God who both promises and is faithful. And I'm telling you, that is more than 
enough. It's more than shipwrecks. It's more than anything that may come. Let me pray for you. God, thank you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the words and phrases and detail, the accuracy that it portends for us, the way that it gives us faith. 